you would grab a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, Luke 3. Good to see you this morning. It felt like a kind of morning where I wanted to sit on the stool. So I hope you're okay with that. Uh, But I don't know, there's something about this topic that makes me think it would be better if I was sitting down. Maybe it's a little easier to take because we're going to get into a little bit of controversy this morning. Uh, beginning in Luke chapter 3. So this is the second Sunday of the month, and typically on the second Sunday of the month here, in this time, the assembly time, the 9 o'clock a.m. assembly, we will have a Q&A. And for those who haven't been here before, on our Q&A morning, we have a number of guests here in our audience. We want you to know we're glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. But I wanted to explain a little bit about what this is about, just so that you don't raise your hand and start trying to ask more questions Uh, during the middle of the Q&A. This is questions that have been submitted to me previously, usually in writing, in some form or another, electronic or otherwise, uh, so that I can have the questions and study on them and present an answer that is sort of well thought out. So uh, it is Q&A in that sense, not in the sense that I'm going to be taking questions from the audience uh, this morning. If you do have a question, I'm always accepting more because If Jesus doesn't come back before we get there, we're going to have more Q&A Sundays, right? So we always need more questions, so be sure and send those to me. Uh, And even if something I say raises questions, feel free to talk to me about that or uh, to send more questions about this question. Uh, But what we're going to do this morning is answer this question. I have been asked this question several times, more than once, and once I start getting questions more than once, I say, okay, I definitely need to answer that one. And so uh, that's the nature of this question. The question is, can a Christian serve in the military? I believe that we should be able to discuss a question like this without any bias, without any hard feelings, without really any emotional attachment, but we need to know that this question is an extremely emotional question historically. It has been from the very beginning of the gospel. Uh, It's always been volatile, and sometimes that becomes a, a way that one side or the other of this question throws accusations at the other, and I don't want us to do that. I want us to be able to think calmly and clearly about what the New Testament actually says about this. I have never served in the military. Uh, I don't have a bias one way or another about that, although I do have my opinions about the question. Uh, But what I'm going to do as we go through this is to try to present what I believe are two distinct perspectives that lead to two distinct conclusions about the topic. So uh, historically, these questions are controversial. Uh, Almost immediately in the, the next century after the New Testament was written, some of the pagans who were criticizing Christians, criticized Christians, including Celsus, who was a Roman, that one of the ways Christians were not loyal to Rome was that they refused to serve in the military. From a very early position, it seems that Christians didn't serve in the military in those centuries after the New Testament was completed. We have several records of church fathers who said church, a military service is wrong and Christians shouldn't serve in the military. There were some who did, But all of that changed when Constantine, in 325, quote-unquote, Christianized the Roman Empire. Constantine converted, and suddenly it was cool to be a Christian. And so everybody in Rome became a Christian. The whole empire said, well, we better do what the emperor is doing. And so we all became Christians. And uh, so suddenly there were lots of soldiers who were Christians. And in fact, the next century, 439, non-Christians were excluded from the Roman military. So think about that. 
Before Constantine, there were almost no Christians in the military. After Constantine, about a century after, there are no non-Christians in the military. So quite a shift because of what Constantine did. And there are more things we could talk about Constantine about. But the morale, the, the rationale for this morally was that there is an idea of a just war. That there are wars that need to be fought. And if those wars are designated by some king or ruler and those wars are morally necessary, which of course is kind of a vague idea, and those wars are executed in a way that we're not going to hurt any civilians or people who are not involved in combat, then those wars are called just. And that continues uh, to be, that idea of a just war doctrine continues even to this day, uh, where people say there are wars that need to be fought, and so Christians being involved in that would be fine because the war itself is just. I also want to say, before I get into the actual issue, just kind of giving a historical perspective, that Christians in the military have kind of a checkered past uh, because the, the most infamous situation that has to do with Christians in the military is the Crusades, where prompted by supposedly the will of God to liberate the Holy Land from the Arabs, Christians, European Christians, traveled across Europe and left just all of this blood in their wake and did this several times through the uh, medieval era. There are, throughout the time after that, in Europe, just constant wars that all have seemingly Christian rationales. Okay? In fact, they were people who all claimed to be Christians fighting each other about certain causes and for certain reasons that don't always have to do with faith, but usually have faith stamped on them. And that only continued with this idea of, well, uh, should Christians be involved in this, or are these wars moral, into the last century, which was the bloodiest century in history, the 20th century, in which now we have nuclear weapons, and so the question of the risks and violence of war just multiply uh, when you think about that. So there is a lot here that uh, should give us pause and is concerning, and there's a lot of historical background to it. But really what I want to do is talk about how I believe this question is going to be answered in one of two ways, depending on your approach. So the first approach I want to talk about is that military service is a part of service to God and to others. So let's talk about from this perspective for a minute, and then we'll talk about it from the other perspective in just a moment. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 10, Luke 3 and verse 10, this is when John the Baptist has come preaching, and it says, Luke 3.10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Talking about how do we bear fruit worthy of repentance. And he answered them, verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So John is giving specifics, you see that here, and he has specific groups who approach him and say, what do we do to repent? And he gives them some instructions, but he takes tax collectors and he doesn't say you need to quit collecting taxes, he says you need to collect what you're supposed to. Soldiers ask him, well, what should we do? And he says, don't extort money from anybody and don't threaten anybody and be content. Now those are, be content with your, what, what you're being paid. Uh, those are historically abuses that are tied to the military service. Historically, those are abuses like threatening and intimidating or being for hire and being discontent with your wages. In fact, sometimes even rioting or taking over the government so that you can get more money. So what is missing from John the Baptist's statements here is you need to get out of the military. This is wrong. 
you don't need to be serving. Okay, so they're soldiers, but they're not told to do anything about that. In fact, it's notable that we do see a large number of soldiers and military people throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, and none of them is told to quit what they're doing because it's wrong or because they're violating some sort of ethical code. That includes Cornelius, we've been studying about in our daily devotionals, daily reading. Uh, Cornelius, who was a centurion. In fact, if you study centurions who are officers in the Roman army, the mentions of centurions in the New Testament are always positive, always. All the centurions have good things to say and good things said about them, if anything is said at all, even though not only are they soldiers, they also work for the hated Roman government. So it's notable that they're not told or criticized in any way in the New Testament. Now, the reason for that seems to be, and as we kind of pursue that perspective of military service is service to God and service to other people, it seems to me that the reason is the government is still viewed as doing the work that God assigned it. So let's look in Romans chapter 13, and I'll show you where I get that perspective. So the the government in Romans 13 is going to be said to be there as an instrument of God to be a check on evil. Romans 13. Romans 13 and verse 1, let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. All right, we could keep reading there and read the tax verses, which, by the way, it's that time of year. If you haven't paid attention, okay, the tax verses are right there, verse 6 and 7, and uh, think about what you need to do there. But um, that's not my topic. So the idea here is since God has appointed governments, we should respect the government. And that's really the thrust of Romans 13. You be subject to the government. But... He also mentions that the purpose God has in giving government is for your good. Look at verse 4 again. He said, He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So that's his goal. His goal is to check evil by executing wrath on those who keep doing evil. So in this perspective, there is a threat behind the government. He says he does not bear the sword in vain. And the threat is intended to check evil. So in this context, when the the government uses the sword, it is not viewed as murder. It is instead viewed as wrath that in Paul's language comes from God. It is God's wrath against the evildoer. So in that perspective, again, violence is not murder. It is maintaining order. That's the perspective Paul gives. So... When we talk about this approach, this approach would say that military service is just another way that government bears the sword and enforces the will of the ruler. Now, please understand that's different, and I don't believe anybody believes this, so I just want to be clear, though. That's different from saying that government is always right and noble. Nobody believes that. We've experienced enough of governments to know that nobody believes that God is endorsing every government as right. Remember, Paul is writing to the Romans who lived in the shadow of an incredibly corrupt government. 
one that often had abuses that were done just at the whim of the emperor. And yet he still says this is part of God's plan for maintaining order and checking evil in the world. So my point is sometimes, according to this perspective and really from Paul's perspective in Romans 13, sometimes we have to defend and enforce the rule of our laws. If we don't defend and enforce them, they won't be laws very long because no one will keep them and they will be meaningless. But this perspective also means that military service is not about being a renegade who just does whatever he wants and, you know, we, we put on the uniform and we get to do what we feel like. This is instead a part of order and a way that order is brought to the world. Now, closely tied to that, I put military service as part of service to God, and you can see that in this text, that if this ruler is doing the work of God by checking evil... And then when we serve him and we are a part of that, then we are serving God. But I also put it's part of service to others. And I believe closely tied to that is the perspective that sometimes we have to protect other people, especially the helpless and the defenseless. And that that may be a part of a rationale for serving in the military. It is one thing for me to say, you know, if you hurt me, I need to turn the other cheek to you. I need to accept that. It is another thing for me to say, if you want to hurt my children, I have to turn the other cheek for them when I am given the responsibility of protection for them. So if that's the case, then you can see how that, that logic works forward. Similarly, some view their military service as a service of protection, sort of like the police, that they are there to protect and to serve, to help people so that they who may not be able to protect themselves are protected. And certainly there are threats that would come against the defenseless were we not defended. Sometimes this perspective appeals to the Old Testament wars. Okay? And you can see numerous accounts in the Old Testament of how Israel went out and fought wars on behalf of Jehovah, at the behest of Jehovah, against other nations, defending their territory, sometimes even gaining territory, like when the conquest of the, of the Canaan land happens. But i got to tell you, I don't think that gets them very far on this perspective um, to, to appeal to the Old Testament battle scenes and things like that. For one, God directly guided Israel, and we don't have that promise or assurance about any nation today, uh, not our nation or any other. When they followed God, they knew they were doing right. We don't have any guarantees like that about our wars. In fact, I think we would all agree as Americans that there are probably some wars and some actions that our nation has taken that we say in retrospect that we probably shouldn't have done that. But that's different from Israel. Yet, I will say this. Remember, God didn't allow David to build the temple because he said, you're a man of blood. You shed a lot of blood. And certainly God's aware of the military service of David and the things that that involved. And yet, that doesn't keep God from telling David, you are a man after my own heart. Or you're the sweet singer of Israel. So it's not as if that service somehow makes him unspiritual. And I think that's important to say. So this perspective would say that military service is part of service to God and to others. I want to give a little bit of a critique before we leave this some things to think about if this is your perspective. One is that this link between serving in the military and serving God is nowhere found outside the Old Testament. Now, I think in the Old Testament it's there uh, because when they fought in these battles, they were fi fighting for Jehovah. But Christians are not told to do this to serve God in the New Testament perspective. Now, it can be logically constructed. We just did that. 
But we have to say we're still on uncertain biblical ground. We're still working on our own reasoning rather than on something that we could expect from the New Testament. The other thing is, the other critique I would have of this approach is that blending service to God and service to our nation is both advantageous to our government in the cynical way and also it's also ripe for abuse. So the cry that we often hear, God and country, is not the cry of the New Testament. And I think it's important to say that God doesn't love only America, nor does he bless only America, nor does God somehow put America above other nations. That's something that we think he should do because we're Americans, but that's not what the New Testament teaches. I mean, the New Testament doesn't even mention America. That's something that is a part of our experience. And I think it's important for us to say that my allegiance to God is always distinct and above my allegiance to any human or any nation. And it's important that we say that because this is an approach that tends to blend the two and not keep them distinct. I've repeatedly heard Christians pray to God for help in advancing American foreign policy objectives. I suspect you have too. And that is concerning to me because what if there are Christians in other nations who are praying for God to advance other foreign policy objectives? What if God doesn't want what America is doing to succeed? What if God wants us to lose? Suddenly, we don't understand that my allegiance to America and my allegiance to God need to be different things and that one goes above the other. I think I said that was my other critique. I think there's one more. My other critique, my other, other critique, is that it's a little easier to defend this position when we feel like wars are just. You know, it's really easy. In fact, if you look back uh, on World War II, World War II is one of those wars where we say, wow, I'm glad somebody did something because things were getting bad and the powers that were so aggressive in Europe and in Asia were so evil. And so we say, well, I'm glad somebody stepped in. That's, that's a little different, though, than, say, the Vietnam War or the Iraq invasion. Okay, these wars that are more recent where we say, I'm not sure the pretext of that is so strong. Americans do have a history of trying to portray all of our wars as defensive, even if we provoke them. If you study any about the Mexican-American War, where we invaded part of Mexico, and then Mexico retaliated, and so we said, look, they attacked us. In fact, it's interesting because we have actually changed the name. We used to have a Secretary of War, and now we have a Secretary of Defense, okay? Because we want to, everyone to know we're only defending. And while I feel like that's appropriate, I feel like sometimes it just betrays the fact that we want it to feel just. But what about when our wars are just about aggression? When there's no reason for us to fight and to kill? I think that raises questions about whether we're really serving God and others. And so that's a critique of that approach. The second approach is that military service is a violation of the Christian spirit of peace. This, of course, would be the approach of those who say, no, a Christian should not serve in the military. I use the word peace here to stand for the whole disposition given in the New Testament. It might not always be directly described as peace or peaceable, but you get the idea. The idea that I'm not going to try to harm anyone, and so I see military service as a way I'm harming. Uh, let's look in Romans 12. 
We're right here in Romans 13, Romans 12 and verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're instructed, don't take vengeance. Live peaceably with all men. Be kind to your enemies. Overcome evil with good. This is an expectation of peace and efforts made toward peace. This is what Paul says Christians should be about and the way we should conduct ourselves in our relationships. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5. A few things here from Matthew 5. You can see... Uh, that this is the fuel for a lot of the historical issues regarding military service, particularly uh, service in war. In Matthew 5 and verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In Matthew 5 and verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. All right, so you get the idea we are to be peacemakers. We don't resist an evil person. We turn the other cheek. Here we love our enemies instead of retaliating against them. This approach focuses on not the governmental perspective that the government has needs and, and there has to be peace in the world and there has to be defense and all that. This approach focuses instead on the personal perspective about how Jesus teaches us to interact with other people and live in peace. So we accept their wrongs against us. We love them anyway. We seek to make peace. And while the military does sometimes seek to make peace or maintain peace, keep peace, there is always a threat that accompanies the military that if you break peace, there's a threat behind what I am and what I can do to you. So it's much more about fighting enemies than loving enemies. So you can see the tension in that when you read Jesus' teachings and then you think about military service. There is a great deal of war imagery in the New Testament, but that war imagery is always taken and used for spiritual reasons in a spiritual warfare motif. So, for example, Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God. But he says specifically, we don't fight flesh and blood, which is a word for people. We don't fight people. We fight Satan. And we are fighting against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Satan and his minions. So we're at war, but not physically. Or Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is when he's before Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now remember, Jesus' servants tried to fight. Remember Peter with a sword, okay? But Jesus stopped them from fighting, and that's the whole point. In fact, from this perspective, you look at these statements and it's, it's pretty strong. Jesus is saying, 
We don't fight because my kingdom's not from here. That's not the way we operate. So this approach would say, Jesus' kingdom's not worldly, so we don't fight physically. I do want to say, whatever we decide about military service, when we look at this passage, this one we just looked at, which I can't go backwards now. But anyway, uh, think about if we went back to that last statement. Jesus is saying that my kingdom is not of this world. It's not going to be advanced by warfare. It's going to be advanced in different ways. And we need to know that. Whatever we decide about military service, that Jesus' kingdom is going to be advanced, not just by any method, and certainly not by physical or carnal methods, but instead by following the way Jesus has described his kingdom being spread through the preaching of the gospel. So in this perspective, primary citizenship is heaven, not here. Here we're pilgrims and strangers. In this perspective, Jesus refused to resist, refused to fight. New Testament Christians didn't take up arms against their oppressors and persecutors. So that's not something Christians should be a part of. Christians are to seek peace. So obviously a lot of this is more personal than the first view, as in personal versus corporate or national. But it looks at what I am called on to do and how I fulfill my obligation to love other people. So let me critique this view for just a moment. I would say in response to this that this view tends to ignore the reality of war. That war is real and war continues to happen. So if we truly follow just that perspective and just say I'm never going to have anything to do with that, are we saying that non-Christians should always have to do all the fighting for us? Because after all, if someone doesn't defend us, then we'll be killed. Okay, is that what we're saying? Are we saying that war is a reality, but I want no part of it, so I'm just going to enlist other people to fight on my behalf, people that aren't as spiritual as I am? The other critique I would have is just the idea of what about defense? Is there not a time and a place where we need to stand up for those who are defenseless? Does Jesus expect there to be constant wars as people live out his will about peace because they refuse to fight back? And I think those are questions that this perspective needs to consider. All right, uh, a few other concerns. I just want to throw these out there. These are not really a part of either perspective. They're concerns I have about the idea of military service. One is the possibility of killing. I agree that this appears to be different from murder, but if we're talking about war, you have to remember that Christians are taught to have a respect for life. We're taught about that, and so that, that extends to how we treat one another, that extends to how we treat the unborn, how we treat the elderly, and it also extends to the issue of war. We have a respect for life because all people were made in the image of God. So I think we need to ask ourselves the question, are we, not only are we going to be able to do this, whether it's right or wrong, but also whether we'll be able to live with ourselves. And by the way, I share that same concern with police officers for similar reasons. Because those are our jobs where killing is a part of what might have to happen. And as awful as that is, and as dangerous and as scary as those situations are, I think we have to consider that's a possibility of the job, and am I going to be able to live with myself and the moral implications of what would happen if that came to pass? Uh, other concerns, it's difficult to maintain faith. I don't know what it's like in militaries throughout the world, uh, but I know this about the American military. Uh, it appears to present serious challenges to faith. Uh, usually you take a young man who's about 18 years old, a very formative time, and you separate him from all the people that uh, have been influences on him, and you separate him from his family, and you put him in a situation where there is a lot of other people his age, and then, you know, there are lots of difficulties and vices that go along with that. It is not really an incubator for faith. Now, if we are concerned about sending our kids off to college, and we are, and we should be, 
then we should also be concerned about this because it is difficult to maintain faith. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's not an argument against it. It just means that we need to approach this with eyes wide open if we're going to do it. And then uh, the last concern I have is that we must trust in government and suspend our moral judgment. This is a concern I have. If I'm in the military, my job is to obey my superiors. I forfeit my right to judge the morality of an action. And no one has the right to tell me that I have to forfeit my rights as a Christian to judge the morality of an action. I must do it. I am called on by a higher power than the government to judge whether what I do is right or wrong. And I don't know what to do about that. That just seems to be inherent in military service uh, because that's true in any military. It's not American. Uh, Just the idea that if they don't obey, then there is chaos in the military. But if they do obey, then they must suspend judgment. But to me, it appears that this is the reason why there is such a long list in every military in the world of horrible atrocities that occur at the hands of military men. So we don't teach soldiers right and wrong. We teach soldiers to do what they're taught. And Christians must always think about right and wrong. So that's a concern I have. All right, so last thing I want to say is can we disagree about this and still get along? I think that's the real question. Uh, Because I I have not presented this as one part is right and one part is wrong. I think there are two different ways to look at the same question. And to me, it appears that both perspectives are valid. So I want you to turn with me really quickly to Romans chapter 14. I think Romans 14 can help us a little bit in thinking about how we would deal with a question like this. So in Romans 14, the church has in Rome has disagreements about diet and about observing feast days. I believe there are concerns that Jews and Gentiles had uh, as they come to Christ and as they leave behind some of the things that they used to do. And so Paul writes in Romans 14 and verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So he has two expectations here. He says this in verse 3, don't despise and don't pass judgment. If someone does something you think is wrong, don't pass judgment on them. And if someone doesn't do something you think is okay, don't look down on them, don't despise them. Instead, he says, when two perspectives on the same issue are there and both of them are valid, just like they would if you eat or don't eat, you observe a day or don't observe a day, then what you need to do is let the other person serve God in the way that they feel is best. Allow them to serve God. Verse 6 says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So do what you do in honor of the Lord. So let me say this about this issue. I do believe we can disagree about it and still get along, but we're going to have to let each other have some leeway about it. And we're going to have to have some generosity with each other about it. This is an, uh, an emotional issue historically. One side accuses the other side of being unpatriotic or unrealistic. One side accuses the other side of having a bloodlust. We have to learn to get along and actually value that there is another perspective and that there are two perspectives that appear to me to be both valid. The last thing I want to say about this, and we're out of time, Christians should always make decisions, whatever they are, with the moral consideration front and center. Is what I am doing right? 
instead of making decisions like, well, what would get me the farthest in my career? What would make me the most money? What would make me the most comfortable? We need to make decisions with the moral consideration first. Can I serve with a clear conscience given what Jesus has taught me? Can I abstain with a clear conscience given the need that our nation and the people around me have? But whatever you decide about that, whatever you do, do it to the Lord. Thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.